from the time I was young to all the way to the point I graduated college, my parents pushed me to get my education. And I knew all along that I would finish because they were right there behind me pushing me. You're listening to Buff Speak, the official podcast of the Paul and Virginia Angler College of Business at West Texas A&M University. I am Dr. Nick Gerlich, your host, as we meet up with the thought leaders making an impact today. It is no secret that these are trying times. With inflation peaking at 9% late last year and the price of everything from eggs to gas continuing to remind us that we're not out of the woods yet, families are having a tough time making ends meet, much less saving for the future. Now, we've, we've all heard the investment mantra, buy low, sell high, but when you don't have any money to buy anything, it all becomes a moot point. It sounds easy, but in practice, it's a completely different story. And don't even think about that first house if you happen to be a Gen Z. Between rising interest rates and inflated house prices, buying a home has simply become out of the question for many young Americans. My guest today is Joseph Peterson, financial planner at Edward Jones in Amarillo and an alum of WT where he earned his undergraduate degree in 2010. He then went on to earn his master's degree at Texas Tech before joining Edward Jones in 2013. Along the way, he has also earned numerous accolades and is well known in our community. Joseph, in a nutshell, what's a young person to do with all that is going on today? How do they get started saving for a future that just seems so far away? Well, you said the right thing, get started. So no matter what's going on out there in the world, the best thing to do is get started, start somewhere. And um, there, there will always be something to worry about. There will always be some type of turmoil going on in the world. But in the midst of all that, we have to get started and we have to save, whether it be saving for retirement, uh, saving for that home, um, even you know saving for the next car. Uh, you got to get started saving. And um, that's, that's what young people should do today. Just start. At, at what point in a young person's life do you recommend that saving begin? Let, let's suppose you graduate from college at age of 22 and you get a job, but you may still have some wild oats you want to sow and you want to go off and play, see the world, rack up a little debt, you know, not worry about things because you're young and carefree. Or is that the time they should start saving? I think then and even before then, you know, um, Everyone wants to have fun, and you can have fun, but you know, don't sacrifice savings for fun. You know, have, do your fun, but then also do your savings at the same time. So, as early as someone is able to, um, as as early as they have money available, I think someone should start saving. So, even before that first job, um, if you have an allowance, think about talking to your parents about investing some of that allowance. That way, you've started the the habit of saving even before you started working. So then when you start working, start saving some of your income um, and invest some of that as well. So you don't have to be 18 to start investing. You can start a custodian account under 18. You have to have a, a guardian over that account. Um, but I definitely say the earlier, the better. You know, Albert Einstein said that the you know, one of the greatest forces on this earth is compound interest. And you get more compounding the earlier you start. But what if you cannot do so? I mean, what if you've got so much uh, student debt, for example, which may or may not come due depending on government policies. Um, you can't just blow that off and maybe you've got a truck payment and 
who knows what, high rent. Uh, what do you do when a person just doesn't have anything? That's what I experienced myself, you know, coming out of my degrees. I had student loans that I needed to repay. I had a car payment that I needed to, to pay as well um, and just needed to prioritize and, and you know, just start as small as. Um, so, again, going back to just get started, start small. And over time, as you get things paid off, as your income increases, you can increase that savings. So, you know, even starting something, if you have a 401k at work, starting at, at one, two, three percent is better than zero percent. So uh, even though starting small is uh, not what you would hope to do uh, when it comes to your savings goal, starting at something, starting small is better than nothing. What types of investments do you advise young people to buy into? That's really going to be dependent on that person's risk tolerance and their time horizon. So there's not a, uh, a broad investment um, that I could say is you know appropriate for, for everyone. But definitely um, what we do at Edward Jones, we sit down with the client, determine what their risk tolerance is, what their time horizon is, um, what goals they're trying to reach. And there's you know, you know various investments that, that may help them reach that goal, whether it be stocks, bonds, you know, mutual funds, exchange traded funds, um, very, very uh, a, a wide range of options out there. And do you uh, stress diversity in, in investments so that you don't have all your eggs in one basket? Most definitely. Diversification is key. Okay. And one of the things I learned in finance class more than 40 years ago is the rule of 72. Can you explain how that works? Sure, sure. Um, it's trying to give you an idea of how often your money will you know, essentially multiply. Um, so say it's doubling that you're looking for. Well, you can take that that rule of 72 and you want to, you know, you want to double your money in say 10 years, you'll divide 72 by 10 and it's going to take you about 7.2 years to double your money. Um, so it gives you that rate of return you need to achieve or it'll give you the, the number of years until you actually double that, that uh, money depending on your rate of return. So that's kind of like Einstein at work here, right? Uh, his, his uh, shrewd observation that compound interest is great and most people don't know that that rule of 72 is so simple. Um, of course, it works in the other direction, too. Like Most when we, we had a downturn last year, um, I was joking with my own financial advisor. It's like, you know, if we keep up at, at this rate, I'll be broke in a few years. <laughs> but, of course, the economy does turn around, and we, we've got an excellent track history in America. Yeah, we go down every once in a while, but we always come back, and with a vengeance. And so... You just got to be patient, right? Patience is key as well, as well most definitely. So uh, assuming a person is able to make ends meet these days, is there a recommended percentage of income that should be put into long-term savings and investments? So general rule of thumb, you know, there's a 15% general rule of thumb for, for savings. Um, but then it's also going to be dependent on your age. So if you're you know, say 25, maybe that 25, maybe that if you're 25, maybe that 15% number is appropriate. But if you're 35, maybe that 15% number needs to be 20%, maybe 25%, depending on how much you've saved um, leading up to that, that, that year. And do you have maybe favorite types of investments? Let's suppose the person is at moderate risk aversion. They want to save for retirement 40 years down the road. Um, which ones or which categories do you see as being really rock solid that are going to 
take people to their financial dreams? I mean, technology, um, energy, uh, real estate trusts, um, which ones? I'd really go back to the diversification. So I think, you know, when you look at all the asset classes out there, um, some years you have real estate as a leader, other years you have stocks as a leader, and in, in, in um, other years, maybe it's even bonds that's a leader. So truly being diversified is uh, our best recommendation for um, success in, in investing. So um, you never know which asset class is going to lead. Um, but I think the other part of it is, again, going back to the age, you know, a younger investor will have much more in equities than an older investor will. That older investor may have more in bonds. And, you know, two different goals there, that bond investor, um, that older investor is looking to, you know, preserve their capital uh, much more because over the years they've, you know, accumulated their wealth. That younger investor hasn't quite accumulated the wealth yet, so they're trying to grow, and that's why those equities are going to be more appropriate for them. So given the shakiness of the economy right now, do you recommend that investors be willing to maybe take on a little more risk or should they play it safe? I mean, after all, the most money to be made is when there is the most risk, and when risk is low, the returns tend to be small. You know, there's a quote, and I can't recall the uh, the author of the quote, but they talk about the markets, and um, you know, there's euphoria that's out there sometimes, and this is just kind of the general public will be in a state of euphoria and um, the quote says that that's the time that you don't want to be investing. When everyone is in euphoria, that's probably the worst time to be investing. But when everyone is pessimistic, that might just be the, the best time to invest. So we go through these cycles where people are really excited about investing and then other times where people are really pessimistic. And um, you know, it's almost counterintuitive, but you, know, you want to be um, most optimistic about investing when people are generally pessimistic and uh, when people are very euphoric about their um, their emotions they're very euphoric about the markets that might be a time to, to trim down a little bit and and what about the evergreen stocks like public utilities were always going to need electricity so uh, my parents told me this years ago decades ago that um, public utilities were some of the, the most secure safest stocks out there you could lock in at, well, today you might be able to get a 6% yield, and that's not bad, right? I mean, do you recommend that path? There's not much risk. Um, you're not going to get filthy rich, but 6% only takes 12 years to double. Right. So um, when you look at each of the sectors, um, especially the utility sector, you know they're going to offer different features and benefits uh, based upon the, the companies in that sector. So like you said, public utilities, you know, we're all going to have to pay that electric bill. That's probably a little bit higher right now with temperatures being a little bit cooler. Um, but, you know, even though the price is higher, that bill is higher, we're still paying it and they're still collecting those, uh, those, those payments. So that's a, a pretty stable company. There's going to be risk of risk involved with uh, any investment that you have, whether it be a utility sector stock or a, a technology stock. Um, the client just has to weigh the the risk, and if they're willing to um, invest in you know a company that has the the potential to um, fluctuate up and down, and 
you know, you're going to see smaller fluctuations from a utility stock stock usually than you will from a technology stock. So the client can weigh, okay, I have a little bit lower risk tolerance, so I'm going to go with the utility versus I have a higher risk tolerance and I'm going to go with the technology stock. So when I started here back in 89, my first financial advisor told me that you could safely expect about a 10% growth rate over time every year. You know, that was an average, of course. You might have some higher, some lower, but on average, 10% a year. More recently, I've heard 7%. What's your take on this? What do you think is uh, a reasonable long-term average, given the ups, the downs, and so forth, that a person can kind of expect? Sure. When you look back over the past 30 years of, say, the S&P 500, it has averaged better than 10% return. Um, usually, when we're investing for clients, we're not going to have a 100% stock portfolio. And even if it was 100% stocks, it's not exactly the same allocation as the S&P 500. So we're really not setting that expectation. Um, for you know, our investors that are going to diversify, you're going to have a little bit of stocks, a little bit of bonds, maybe even some cash, and that return is going to be much lower. So you know we have portfolio objectives, and that portfolio objective could have you know 0% stocks all the way up to 100% stocks. Um, but depending on the range, you're you're looking anywhere from you know three and a half percent on the more conservative side up to about seven percent on the more aggressive side. So that range is going to vary depending on what percentage you have in stocks versus bonds. But that's kind of the the, the long term average we see um, in in terms of expected rate of returns. And, and what about people my age who might be thinking about retiring in a few years? Uh, the downturns of the stock market in 2022 had a lot of people my age really worried. Um, I mean, I yeah, I saw money just going out the bottom end of it, <laughs> down the drain. Uh, what should people like me in their 60s be doing at a time when we all thought we might be able to make a grand exit from the workforce? So, you know, first and foremost, if the person doesn't have a financial advisor, I would encourage them to find a trusted financial advisor they could sit down with and look at their specific situation. Um, there's definitely going to be uh, options and tools available to them to you know, decrease the amount of risk that they're taking in their portfolio. Um, so I think when you think about retirement today, people are working a little bit longer um, and it may be because of the stock market or it may be uh, because of other factors. But if you want to look at your, you know, say a 401k uh, or, or whatever your retirement account is uh, with the financial advisor, determine if you're making um, appropriate allocation or if you have appropriate allocation in that 401k, if there needs to be any changes to you know, decrease the amount of risk. Um, because what decreasing the risk will do will decrease the amount of fluctuations. So it, it, it you're less likely to have to delay retirement if your portfolio is not fluctuating uh, as much, especially as you get closer to the end. So that would be the the number one recommendation is sit down with a trusted advisor that kind of can help you look at your allocation and make sure you're taking the appropriate amount of risk and then also help you uh, really you know, forecast what retirement will look like um, for that portfolio for, for, for you and your family. So does this mean that people of my generation might be working until – they're 70 or even 80. I mean, even the, the Social Security Administration is set up for people uh, to start drawing their benefits at age 70 if they elect. It's almost like they 
kind of get it that some people are delaying retirement for whatever reason. Uh, and, and what does it mean for the overall employment in the U.S. if people don't retire at a traditional age and instead cling to their jobs far longer than anyone ever guessed they would? I mean, we are unlike a lot of European countries that have mandatory retirement ages. We can work as long as we want to. Right. And I think, you know, again, when you go back to why people choose to, to work longer, it may be a financial decision. Um, but many times it, it's because, you know, they don't necessarily want to stop working. So it's a it's a work optional lifestyle, meaning they have the money available to retire. You know, no matter what the stock market is doing, they feel secure and comfortable in their finances to be able to retire. But they enjoy their work and they want to keep working or they don't necessarily um, have any other plans in terms of, you know, a lot of people sometimes think about traveling more when they retire well maybe that individual was able to travel while they were working and they don't have you know the need of having a bunch of time off to be able to go travel when they retire um, different situations like that that the reason people are working longer is not always be financial a financial decision it may be kind of just a, a lifestyle you know there was um, some research that showed after people retired if they were um stagnant basically if they if they didn't get out as much as they did while they were working their health deteriorated so it may be health reasons that people continue to work um, rather than you know financial reasons but when you when you think about those people that do have the finances available to retire and and, and choose to retire um, the the ability to continue to uh, enjoy life uh, because they sa saved well when they were working and uh, made the appropriate decisions in terms of retirement planning, um, I think those people have uh, the highest level of satisfaction in their retirement. Now, isn't there an age at which you have to start pulling money out of that 401k or 403b like I have? Uh, because basically, that's all tax-deferred income. We haven't paid taxes on it yet. We've been kicking that can down the road for quite a few years. And, of course, the government wants to get theirs, right, before you're dead. <laughs> so at what point do you have to start pulling out, even if you're still working? So recent legislation is actually changing that number again. So um, prior to the SECURE Act, it was 70 and a half for those that had qualified retirement accounts. Well, the SECURE Act increased that to 72. Well, recent leg legislation that was passed at the end of 2022 um, is now moving that number up to 75, and it will happen in kind of stair steps. So in 2023, that age will be 73. In 2024, it'll go up to 74. And then there in 2025, it'll be 75 will be the requirement and distribution age, and it'll stay there at 75 until future legislation action, most likely. Well, and we are still living longer. It may have leveled off a little bit during uh, the COVID years, but I suspect uh, our lifespan will uh, resume increasing. And if we're living longer, we need more money, right? I mean, there is no point in time where you're just living for nothing. It costs money to live. Most definitely. That goes back to your point about Social Security. Um, when Social Security was initially set up, we didn't have the life expectancy that we have today. It was, you know, I think I don't know the specific numbers, but they only projected to have to pay for, say, maybe five years or so. 
and then you know so say the age was 62 and um you know life expectancy was 67 well they only expected to pay for about five years well now our life expectancy is much longer than that so people are living longer on social security and um living longer through their retirement accounts whether it be the 403b the 401k and uh, that's definitely a factor in uh, retirement planning that we work with clients on. After the break, we'll dig into how Joseph came to WT in the first place and how it set the stage for everything he has done since then. Paying taxes is never fun, and for this reason, there's always a demand for more CPAs. Our MPA degree or Master's in Public Accounting prepares students to take the CPA exam and helps their clients navigate those tricky waters. Or you could use this as a stepping stone towards a PhD in a career in academia. Either way, our MPA will ensure that you are up to date on all of the generally accepted accounting principles and ready to toil in the world of taxation, debits, and credits. We're AA CSB accredited and among the most elite of business schools around the world. Reach for the stars and do it with a WT MPA in hand. Waivers are available for the GMAT. For more information, find us at wtamu.edu slash cob or give us a call at 806-651-2500. From the Texas Panhandle to the world, we're here to help you reach for those stars. Joseph, I noticed on social media how much you attribute your successes to your parents. I sense there's a lot more story here. Please tell us a little bit more. Sure. From a young age, my parents pushed me to work hard and... Um, not just work hard, but also give back. And I think that's a big part of why I'm the person I am today. It's, you know, watching them model um, success. And, and, you know, my dad showing me how to be a successful man. He, my dad went to the University of Alabama. He's a chemical engineer today for the Bureau of Land Management. My mom owned a bakery in Amarillo for, for several years. And I always saw how hard they worked to provide for my sister and myself. And I knew that you know, when I grew up that I wanted to work hard to provide for my family. So that's definitely um, where the inspiration comes from. There's where the where the drive comes from is uh, my parents. How did you wind up here in Amarillo? Your profile says you came from Birmingham, Alabama, not exactly a day's drive from here. It's a little bit different and a little, a little far away. Uh, my dad, again, works for the Bureau of Land Management. So he was working there in Tuscaloosa and his job transferred us to Amarillo, Texas back in about 96. So I think I was somewhere around six years old, getting ready to turn seven when we moved to Amarillo. Uh, so most of, most of my life has been here in Amarillo, um, and it's it's home now. You know, when we first moved here, it's funny. I would always say Alabama was home, Birmingham was home, and uh, I think I've been here long enough to, to call Amarillo home now. Yeah, you sunk a tap root, right? That's right. <laughs> it's home. After graduating from Tascosa High School in Amarillo, you decided to come here to WT. How did this all come about? So in high school, I did several college tours, um, you know, Amarillo College, WT, Texas Tech. Um, I ended up choosing WT, and I think the number one reason was because I knew in high school that I wanted to continue to play football in college, and WT was going to give me the opportunity to do that. But even past football, um, I set a goal in high school to become the, the CEO of a major corporation in America. And when I toured WT, um, at the time, the College of Business was a T. Boone Pickens College of Business. And, of course, you know, T. Boone Pickens was a successful uh, businessman. And I thought that um, if I go into the, the business school at WT, it can uh, help prepare me to work my way up that corporate ladder and accomplish the goal of uh, being a CEO. 
My memories of you run back more than a decade now when you were in the McNair Scholar Program, and you asked me to mentor you through a final research project. What did you do to get into that program? Because that's no small accomplishment. I was definitely honored to be selected to be a participant in the program. I remember you know, Victoria Salas and Mike Cook were the, the two individuals that uh, talked to me about the program. And uh, with the McNair Scholar Program, what you do is research, and you get to choose what you want to research, but you also uh, get to choose a faculty member to, to help you with that research. So for me, being a business student, I knew I didn't have anything that was scientific, like a biology major may have, um, but I, I did want to have research that was you know, impactful. So what I chose to do was look at the impacts of social media. So it was just becoming uh, very prevalent. We had MySpace at the time, Facebook was uh, fairly new, and then Twitter uh, was around as well. So those were the three uh, social media platforms that we chose to do research on. And uh, it was a no-brainer choosing you as my, my mentor because you had um, had a presence already on social media, even even that early. And um, I had your, your, your course where we talked about you know, marketing and how marketing can affect businesses. Um, so my research took a, an approach of how is social media affecting students um, and I, I knew that you know, working with you and the, the work that you did with marketing would uh, help me have a, a great research project, which we did. So thank you for that. Well, that was a lot of fun. I remember it well. What was it like being in that program? I mean, you're among some of the most elite of w WT students. Did you uh, get together as other McNair scholars or, or did you just all function apart from one another? So we definitely got together. So we spent a whole summer together, really, um, and worked on those projects. But then the next step was presenting the research. So we all got together and presented our research at the um, you know, U University of North Texas was one of the um, places that we were able to present our research. And then, of course, here uh, locally at WT, we presented the research here also. So we spent time together and got to bounce ideas off of each other and, and polish our presentations um, through practice before we went and did actual uh, competitions. After WT, you went down the road to Texas Tech for your master's degree. And first of all, what prompted you to pursue tech for your graduate degree? And secondly, what did you study? That's a great question. I'm glad we just talked about the McNair Scholar Program because that program was very uh, essential in me making the decision to go to Texas Tech. So as I was a part of that McNair Scholar Program, we went and toured Texas Tech and the graduate school um, recruiter, Shannon Sampson is her name, she became my boss at Texas Tech. Um, and it was almost divine intervention because my goal was to go down to Texas Tech and uh, enter the MBA program. Well, I actually entered under a different program, the Interdisciplinary Studies program, and that's because my score on the GMAT was a little lower than the average score for someone they were accepting there at Texas Tech. So the goal was to go down and, and do an MBA, but um, it turned out that I actually did a master's in sport management instead. Um, but it was, I call it divine intervention because when I got the letter that I was not accepted into the MBA program, I was kind of lost and didn't know what to do next. So I called my future boss, Shannon Sampson, and she told me, hey, you can come under interdisciplinary studies 
study three concentrations, apply again, and you know eventually you'll you'll be able to uh, enter into the MBA program. So what I did was went under inter interdisciplinary studies, um, chose the th three concentrations of business, sport management, and communications, and throughout my time. You know, I took all the business classes that I could, which was 12 hours. And then after I finished those 12 hours, I started on the sport management classes. And I actually never took any communications classes because I ended up choosing to switch from interdisciplinary studies to sport management with a minor in business. So I took um, all the business classes I could take, which was 12 hours, turned those into a minor, and then finished out with the sport management master's. Um, the, the story about being able to apply again, I applied a second time, uh, probably after my first semester, was denied again, and then maybe after the third semester, I applied a third time and was finally admitted, but it was going to extend graduation about another year instead of another semester, so that's where I chose to go ahead and just graduate with the sport management degree as opposed to switching to the MBA and, and extending graduation out another semester. So long story there, but uh, the way I got to Texas Tech is um, I had a job lined up as a as a recruiter for the graduate school and uh, a job, but no entry into the uh, university quite uh, uh, right away. So uh, when I went when I went to, when I switched to interdisciplinary studies that gave me entry into the university, I was able to fill that role as a graduate recruiter and then uh, eventually switched majors and, and, and graduate. So you've mentioned the McNair Scholar Program, um, but what is that program all about? Uh, for whom is it named, and what's the purpose of it? So Ronald E. McNair was an astronaut, and uh, he was one of the astronauts that passed away in, in the crash. Um, I think the Challenger was the, um, the name of the, the uh, rocket that, that crashed. And um, they named the program after him, and... They're all across the nation. You can look at uh, universities that receive funding and uh, help undergraduate students do research um, and all kinds of research. And again, it's preparing them for graduate school, um, whatever the major may be. So you know, again, blessed to be able to participate in that program and do undergraduate research, prepare me to go on and uh, achieve my master's. And, um, you know, I'm glad to see that WT is still offering the program, and um, I hope it's here for many years to come. So what was it like being in grad school? Um, did you feel like you were prepared for the task with your degree from WT? I mean, I, I recall when I did my MBA many years ago at Indiana U, I got there and I was scared to death. I had doubts about my abilities when I entered that program because I had come from a lot smaller school from my undergrad, and all of a sudden, I was this one lonely little fish out in a sea of 35,000 others. Uh, I quickly got over it, but man, it was pretty scary there for a bit. I would agree with that sentiment. I, I went in scared, but um, that, that fear is what caused me to be successful. And I say that because... I prepared more than I ever had going into it. So um, as an undergraduate student, you know, really going back to high school, high school, things came easy. I didn't have to study. Um, and, and, you know, without much effort, I did well in school. And I would say that same thing probably happened 
here at WT. Um, but at Texas Tech, I knew, uh, actually, and going back to the question about how did I choose w, uh, Texas Tech for the for the master's program, um, WT at the time that I graduated was not AACSB accredited. However, Texas Tech was. So I knew that to make myself more marketable, I wanted to have a you know what I thought was more prestigious um, degree on my resume as I was you know thinking about graduating and going and looking for jobs. So I would have WT for my undergrad, and then I would have Texas Tech for my master's. And you know, in that at that time, I thought it would be a little bit more prestigious, and it would have that AACSB accreditation. Of course, WT has that accreditation now, um, but. As I was um, thinking about school and and going to start the masters, I knew okay if I'm going to be successful, I'm not going to be able to just you know cruise through this thing. I'm going to have to put the work in. So when I when I got my syllabus for my classes, I reached out to the professors and asked them to see them in their office hours before classes even started. So say classes started you know in the um, end of August. Well, the middle of August, I'm sending them emails saying, hey, can I come talk to you about class, about the syllabus, uh, what I can do to be successful in your class? And I had never done that during my undergraduate d degree, um, but that's that's the level of work I was willing to put in to be successful uh, at the master's. I think the, the, the fear also came from the fact that I was not admitted. So I you know, felt I wasn't necessarily good enough to be in the classes, even though you know I... You know, went under the inter interdisciplinary, interdisciplinary studies and um, started taking the business classes, I didn't think I should be there because I wasn't admitted. So I was going to do everything in my power to show them that I should be there and that I was going to be successful. And I was, you know, um, coming out of that first year, I think I had um, you know, somewhere around a 3.7 GPA, uh, something of that nature. Um, 3.8, and I finished uh, my master's with a 3.714 uh, GPA. So, you know, I think it was all in my head in terms of, you know, not being uh, up to par uh, just because of the experience I had with, you know, with applying. But by the time I finished, I knew I was supposed to be there, and I was glad to have that acceptance letter, even though I didn't uh, switch over to the MBA. It uh, was validation that I was You, exactly you kind of had the last word. You got to turn them down. That's right. That's right. <laughs> There's some poetic justice there, right? Anyway, you went to work for Edward Jones in 2013. What prompted you to choose them to launch your career? And what milestones have you hit in the decade that you've been there? Great question. So uh, there's a little bit of a story there in terms of uh, landing at Edward Jones because I, I told you earlier that the goal was to become a CEO of a major corporation in America. So I always thought that I'd, you know, go into a job where I was working my way up the co corporate ladder. Well, I met some Edward Jones advisors at a career fair here at WT. Um, I was still at Texas Tech at the time, but I had chose to drive up for the career fair and just to kind of see what options were out there. And um, they were telling me about their career path and kind of, you know, what it meant to be a financial advisor. You know, when I was here at WT, I took a finance class, um, but not a personal financial planning class. Um, so I really didn't know a lot about the role. So they told me a little bit about it. They hooked me up with a guy in Lubbock named Daniel Castro, who's now the regional leader for the, the region there in Lubbock. And he told me about his experience um, starting kind of where he was at the time. He was about 10 years in at the time when he was talking to me. 
And at that point, I saw that you know, I didn't need to try to work up any corporate ladder. I could come in as a financial advisor and it would be my office and there's there's no ladder to try to climb. Um, I'm already at the top of you know my my business and I started thinking more of you know not just status or a position, more of quality of quali- quality of life. So they talked about autonomy and being able to you know essentially run the business the way you want to run it and do the things that are um, important to you. Uh, spend time doing things that are important to you. So I was married. Uh, we hadn't had kids just yet, but I knew it was going to be important for me to uh, be present in my kids' life, just like my parents were for me. So every box that I was uh, looking at was checked by Edward Jones in terms of you know the the autonomy um, being you know kind of the 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 guy, if you will, in the in the office. It's it's my office. Um, kind of the financial freedom aspect of it and um, the the time freedom aspect of it being able to you know go pick go pick my kids up drop my kids off um, I need to you know be flexible with my calendar I can do that so that really is what spoke to me the most um, as I was you know considering um, you know, becoming a financial advisor and uh, financial advisor at Edward Jones in particular uh, and and even today that's what you know I enjoy the most. Uh, the The firm uh, allows me to run the business the way I want to run the business. Gives me that autonomy. And um, in terms of milestones, I've recently uh, gained a couple of uh, leadership responsibilities. So my, my title right now, I am the recruiting leader for Region Three Twenty Six, which is the region in the Amarillo area. And I'm also the diversity inclusion leader for the region. Uh, so accepting leadership roles, I've um, won a couple of awards as well. So back in 2022, uh, I was awarded the Spirit of Caring Award, which is uh, voted on by my peers. So that was really important to me to, to receive that um, just for you know all we do to pour back into uh, the community. I was a uh, recognized by my peers for 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 our efforts there and then also in 2022 um, there's a client excellence um, survey and we had you know one of the top 25 percent client excellence uh, surveys um, in, in our region so <clears throat> have definitely achieved some 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 milestones and many more to be had um, but I uh, I'm glad about 10 years ago I made the decision to, to come to Edward Jones, and uh, it's been a, a great ride. Joseph, what's your personal mission statement? I mean, you've been out of school for a long time now, a whole decade. You've earned your stripes, but there must be a driving reason that causes you to get up every day to do what you do. Um, I've never written down my personal mission statement. Um, definitely thought about it, and you know when I think about business and life, personal, they're they're so blended. And um, you know, in my business, 
my goal is to help my clients reach their financial goals and in the mission you know it says it says to help families grow protect transfer and manage wealth so i want to help my clients that are in the accumulation phase grow their wealth those clients that have already grown grown their wealth i want to help them protect it and those that are you know thinking about the next generation help them transfer it all while you know managing uh, man- managing it for all of those those people and you know that's kind of what I do on the business side um, on the personal side I want to help people uh, grow and you know whether that be the community work that I do so there's several nonprofit boards that I serve on and, and several nonprofits that I just volunteer for. And, you know, I think you know, when I think about my personal personal mission statement, I want to help people. I want to help them, you know, grow and get to a, a better place um, and just, you know, give back. Because when I was a kid and you know, there was mentors and you know, adults and you know, people pouring into me, that that's you know really what molded me um, into who I am today. You know, my parents and other other mentors. Uh, pouring into my life when I was a kid, so I want to do that same thing for, you know, kids today, and you know, even if it's not kids, you know, even adults that we work with uh, through the different nonprofits, there's a lot of good that we do, and uh, I think I'm fulfilling my mission every day when when I do that. One of my greatest career satisfactions is working with minority students. I I love to see them prosper and go far beyond what society might otherwise think possible. When we come back, we'll explore this aspect of Joseph's story. The MBA is the most popular graduate degree in the United States and with good reason. It leads to better jobs, promotions, and salary increases. At the Paul and Virginia Engler College of Business at West Texas A&M University, our MBA program is entirely online for when you're ready to make that move. With as few as 31 credit hours and specializations offered in five areas, you can fast track your career in as little as 18 months. Whether you're looking for a promotion or initial job placement, you'll stand head and shoulders above the competition. And because we've been teaching online since 1997, we're not the new kids on the block. Trust your education and career to dedicated faculty who are not only experts in their fields, but also old pros in the online arena. Our consistently high rankings say it all. A GMAT waiver is available. We're CSB accredited and among the most elite of business schools around the world. Reach for the stars and do it with a WT MBA in hand. For more information, find us at wtamu.edu slash COB or call 806-651-2500. From the Texas Panhandle to the world, We're here to help you reach those stars. In my 34 years at WT, I've seen the demographics of the student body change quite a bit. We're a lot less white than we once were, with the student body now populated by growing numbers of Hispanics, African Americans, Asians, and Native Americans. From my perspective, this makes for the perfect classroom, one that is not an echo chamber in which prior beliefs are affirmed and the old status quo goes on, but instead challenged 
not just from the podium, but also from peer-to-peer conversation. That is a necessary part of education, and it may make some people uncomfortable, but education is like that. After all, we may be at university, but it really is about diversity. Joseph, what was your experience like at WT as a minority student? I think opportunity is the the word that, that comes to mind, and it's because there was a lot of opportunity for growth. So there wasn't a lot of um, diversity in uh, in in the student body in the, in the faculty, um, but that means there was a lot of opportunity for growth. So as a student, I helped start the a few organizations here on campus uh, at WT as well as at Texas Tech, but. One of them was the NAACP, so the National Association for Advancement of Colored People, a national organization, of course. Well, we started a student chapter here on WT's campus, and um, you know it was so there was there was opportunity to um, start that on on campus where it hadn't been before. Uh, we also started a, a Black Men's Association uh, on, here on on campus, and uh, I think. The opportunity to do something that had never been done before was pretty cool. So I think that's why that that that, that word comes to mind first. Um, but then also, uh, uh, when I think about sticking out um, for for good reasons, <laughs> of course I you know stick out when you walk around campuses. There not not a lot of people that look like you. You stick out almost like a sore thumb, but. When uh, when it's for a good reason, then I don't mind it. So, um, you know, I think I made a, a mark on uh, probably a lot of my pr- professors, um, you being one of them. And um, it's because, you know, when you see a successful um, black man, it, 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 it sticks out. Um, and I think... That's probably what my experience was here at WT was there was opportunity for um, me to change perceptions or um, opportunity for me to show people what a successful black man looks like. And uh, I took full advantage of that opportunity. I think it's important for every white person to find themselves in a situation in which they are the minority um, I'll, I'll never forget um, taking my Chinese adopted daughters to Beijing in 2019. They fit right in. In fact, they blended in so well I could lose them in a crowd. But they could never lose me because I was the only white guy there. <laughs> I stood out. Um, yes. Fortunately, uh, there, was, there were never any problems. I was welcomed regardless. And so I have to ask you, how did you feel you were treated uh, both at WT and at Tech, I'd say the same. No, no issues. Um, I felt welcome at at every turn, and you know, I liked both universities for different reasons. So at WT, the small size—I think that's what I needed coming right out of uh, high school—and you know, everyone knew everyone. It, it seemed like. Um, when I got to Tech's campus, it was so big, I felt like I didn't know anyone. Um, and I liked that aspect also uh, because, you know, 
it seemed so much I go back to that word opportunity. It seemed, it seemed like there was so much opportunity to get involved in, in different things that I never even, you know, thought about getting involved in. So I actually helped start um, the Red Cross Club at the uh, Texas Tech chapter. So we were a part of the South Plains Regional Chapter of the American Red Cross. And I really didn't know much about the Red Cross going into um, Texas Tech. But, you know, through one of my courses, and it was actually one of the business courses, uh, there was a service project uh, element to it. And that's kind of what we did was chose to uh, support the, the Red Cross that was there locally. So um, that those type of things um, happened um, just because of the opportunity that was available. I mean, the, the depth and breadth of the uh, options available, I guess. So when I you know come back to WT um, again that that small class size just a small uh, university feel worked really well for me uh, when I was you know 18 19 20 years old and as I was uh, going to tech as you know a, a 20 year old um, I was I was uh, more comfortable with that larger setting and and was wanting to you know, get the full experience and, and see what all I could, um, what all opportunities I could explore there. And, and what about in the job world? How have you been accepted in that uh, perspective? Uh, same thing. It's been, uh, a, it's been a welcoming um, experience, I should say. So, from an expectation standpoint, you really don't know what to expect. So especially when you think about, you know, um, I'm, I'm probably one of the only uh, financial advisors. Um, I don't know the geographic area because, you know, for sure I'm the only black financial advisor at Edward Jones in this area. Uh, but I, I think that I'm the only black financial advisor um, at any firm in, in this area. So when clients... Um, or prospective clients are, are looking for somebody to manage their money, they usually don't look like me. Um, so I could have, uh, kind of go back to that mentality thing, I could have something in my mind telling me that, you know, they won't want to work with me, but that has not been my experience at all. Um, I have more white clients than I do black clients, naturally because of the uh, the population here, but that just tells you that, you know, there's not, um, a objection to uh, a black man managing, um, you know, a, a white person's or any other race's finances. So it's it's been a welcoming experience. I, I think I probably expected a little bit more um, negative than than I've experienced. So it's been pleasant, pleasantly um, surprising. That's good. You know, there's an old saying: a nod is as good as a wink to a blind horse. If you close your eyes, or if you truly are blind, you can't see what color a person is doesn't matter, does it? Right, right. Joseph, I've always been impressed with you, uh, not just as a minority student, but as a student, period. You impressed upon me that you were a very hard worker, um, and your work ethic has always been very, very obvious. You've mentioned your parents more than once. Um, I have to ask, where did you get that work ethic? Was it from mom and dad? Was it from playing football? And can you please bottle it and sell it to the rest of my students? <laughs> I definitely uh, would say the number one 
um, source uh, was my parents. But then my experiences just growing up, um, high school and college, kind of not hardened me, but showed me that was the formula for success. You know, hard work was going to be that formula. So in high school, I remember um, going back to football, you know, my freshman year and my sophomore year, um, I played football. I, I didn't start, I think, um, I was on JV my sophomore year. Um, and then that summer, I wanted to have more playing time. And I wanted to make, you know, varsity. So every day there was workouts, I rode my bike from my house to the high school because my parents were working and couldn't take me. Uh, so I rode my bike and didn't miss a single day of, of workouts and, you know, got bigger, faster, stronger, all of that. But come first game of my junior year, I was the, the starting uh, defensive end there for, for Tascosa. And that was reinforcement that, okay, I put in all this hard work and there was a direct payoff and, 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 and result. So um, coming out of high school, getting ready to go to college, I mentioned that I you know, played here at WTE and I knew I wanted to play. Um, I kind of made that decision during that senior year. Well, I wasn't heavily recruited and I actually walked on the WT. So um, coming in that first year, I didn't have a scholarship. I didn't get a scholarship until my, my sophomore year. Well, that was kind of another one of those experiences where it was almost like a, it wasn't a no, but it wasn't, I wasn't getting highly recruited from, you know, a bunch of different universities. I had to go kind of knock on doors and say, hey, I, I want to be here. And kind of similar to when I was going to get my master's, it, it was, okay, I had that mentality of I'm going to have to work really hard to show them I'm supposed to be here. No, they didn't recruit me and give me a, give me a scholarship. Yes, I was a preferred walk-on, but um, that, that's not the same as being scholarshiped day one that you come on. So I was going to work hard and show them that I was supposed to be there and that I deserved a scholarship. So at the end of my first year, I was the uh, junkyard dog player of the year for the, for the defense. So um, I think during the season – there's a player of the week for the scout team. And uh, I was scout team player of the week five different weeks during the season. And again, at the end of the year, I was the junkyard dog player of the year, um, my freshman year here. And that was because I knew I was going to have to put the work in to uh, show them I was supposed to be here and, and earn that scholarship. So I think going back to the question, my experiences um, have proven time and time again that you know, even though at first glance, when someone else, you know, looks at me or my resume or whatever it may be, um, they might not see what I already know is true, but I'll work hard and show them what the truth is. You mentioned that you're on some boards here in the Amarillo area. How did that happen, and what roles do you fill? It seems as though you say once, you say yes one time, and uh, then the the uh, the offers come in kind of like a, a waterfall. So I think the very first board I served on, uh, interestingly enough, was the, the Red Cross there in, in Lubbock, so the South Plains Regional Chapter of the Red Cross. As a part of starting that chapter, uh, I served as president, and being president of the Texas Tech chapter puts you on the board for the Red Cross Club 
uh, excuse me, the, the, the South Plains Regional Chapter of the American Red Cross there in Lubbock. So that was my first experience serving on a board. And I knew when I came back to Amarillo that um, when I started my business, I mentioned that Jones allows you to run the business the way you want. Well, I wanted to be able to work with nonprofits and with their donors, and uh, I thought it would be really rewarding work, um, you know, working in that space. So I talked to a different, uh, a couple of different um, people, and they encouraged me to you know, start volunteering and start serving. So one of the very first things I did was serve as a loan executive for the United Way of Emerald and Canyon. Uh, this was way back in 2015 or so, and um, Fast forward, what's eight years later, I'm uh, the past president for the United Way of Emerald Canyon, um, the, the the board, the board of directors. So last year I served as the, the president and I'm now the, the past president. But I started as a loaned executive going out and um, you know, speaking at rallies on behalf of the United Way, raising monies for the, the local nonprofits in the community. And that really opened my eyes to uh, the nonprofit community in Amarillo. I learned a lot and um, spent a lot of time, you know, volunteering and worked all the way up to where I was uh, the board president and and was trying to lead the organization um, and and continue to make an impact on the on the Amarillo community. So that's just you know kind of one example of kind of where I got plugged in and continued to to serve. And that same thing has happened in in numerous organizations so like i said once you say yes uh they the the word is out that you say yes to volunteering and and, and more ask come um you are also on our dean uh, dr abdullah's uh, executive advisory board for the college of business what role do you play in this group so that was uh, an honor to be asked to to serve on that exec, ex, executive advisory board um, it's a a room of um, what I would say you know a lot of prestigious people here in the in the area. So I'm honored to be in the room amongst those people. Um, so just kind of a, a board member that helps um, give Dr. Abelot uh, information in terms of what's going on in the business community in Amarillo. So because I'm so plugged in, I serve on the um, the board for the Amarillo Chamber and. Um, I see what's going on in Amarillo, whether it be um, the business community through the the chamber, the nonprofit community through the different nonprofits, but even even civically, um, I serve on a couple city boards as well. So I think I'm very um, informed on what's going on in the Amarillo area. So as a part of the executive advisory board for Dr. Abdullah, I'm able to you know just give opinions on what's going on and where. WT can can fit in that equation. So WT is a huge piece of our economy, and um, if WT is successful, then our area will be successful. So just being able to to give him advice on, you know, what the needs of the community are and what we're seeing and how WT can be a part of that. Where do you want to see our college of business go in the future? I mean, you do have the dean's ear, and I know he's listening closely. Well, in those meetings, we've we've been very vocal about. Um, getting students jobs and of course that's that's the end goal um, for every college of course um, but you know in particular giving them some experience before they graduate 
to be a little bit more marketable and, and you know, almost have a job already lined up before they graduate. So partnering with companies in Amarillo to offer internships or, or apprenticeships, um, just opportunities to, to gain some real-world experience even before they graduate and then potentially have a job lined up um, as, soon as, they, as soon as they graduate to keep them here because we lose too many. So um, if we can do a good job getting them experience, getting them um, plugged into the, the community, they may stay here uh, at a higher rate than we currently have them. What can we do to attract more minority students? Um, I want to see a more balanced classroom, one that draws from you know a huge variety of backgrounds and experiences. What should we be doing? So there's uh, groups in town um, that are specific to you know your different uh, communities. So I think of the Hispanic Chamber of Commerce. That's a, a great resource for. Um, you know, tapping into the Hispanic community. And I serve on the North Heights Advisory Association Board. And, you know, that's, you know, not specific to um, the African-Americans. However, uh, the North Heights neighborhood uh, has, you know, a good population of African-American, African-Americans in the Amarillo um, 79107 zip code. And getting in front of organizations like that I think um, to really just market WT um, and and tell them what's available could could you know yield results. So um, I know we're in the high schools and we have you know the career counselors and, and things of that nature at high schools that that tell um, the students about the colleges. But I think there's community organizations that may have more of an influence on students than even. Uh, the counselors uh, there at the at the high schools. Lastly, what advice can you give to minority students and their potential success? I, I realize it's not always an easy decision to go to university, especially given the cost these days. And then there are the social pressures. What words of encouragement do you have? I'll just take my experience um, in encourage students that you know hard work does pay off so uh, push through uh, and at the end of the uh, hard work you, you you pick your head up and you see the uh, success and you know the, the results of that hard work being success I think if students can focus on the end result um, and push through the hard work, they'll be glad that they made it to the other side. Our guest today has been Joseph Peterson, a WT grad, and he's a financial planner with Edward Jones. Joseph, give us your best shot. I'm Joseph Peterson. I'm a financial advisor at Edward Jones in Amarillo, Texas, and I love WT. Go Buffs! You've been listening to Buff Speak from the Paul and Virginia Angler College of Business at West Texas A&M University. Our executive producer is Justin Lovell, and Allison Hunter is our associate producer. Our co-editors are Maverick Evans and Paul Torres. Lindsay Bjork is our director of marketing and outreach initiatives, which includes overseeing Buff Speak. Dr. Jeffrey Babb is director of accreditation and is our technical consultant. 
finally, Dr. Amjad Abdullah is Dean of the College. You can find us online at wtamu.edu slash cob for more information about our programs. Be sure to check out our many academic offerings. Come for the quality, stay for the small classes, affordable tuition, and friendly approachable professors. And look online at our faculty blog, profspeak.com, for more insights. You can listen to BuffSpeak on your favorite podcast portal, as well as on our website, buffspeak.biz. And if you like what you've been hearing, don't be afraid to share us with your friends, colleagues, and family. Word of mouth has always been the best form of advertising. Until next time, love one another. For the Paul and Virginia Angler College of Business at West Texas A&M University, I am Dr. Nick Gerlich. And as always, go Buffs! Buff Speak.